The Bain Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama, presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. On the podcast, Constellations of Stories and Stories of Constellations. An e-arch stampede flattens the great plains of boredom. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have an interview with Sharon Lee of Leaden Universe fame on the new short story collection, A Leaden Universe Constellation, Volume 3, by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Sharon discusses several of the stories in the collection as we delve into their origins and the Ur foundations of the Leaden Universe itself. The collection, A Leaden Universe Constellation, Volume 3, is available in print in August but it is now available at ebooksellers everywhere, including at Bain eBooks and those other places. So you have actionable intelligence to act on right after our interview with Sharon Lee, if you are so inclined. We will get to that in a moment, but first here's the news. The new E-Arcs are out and squawking like mad raptor chicks preparing to take down their first meal. An E-Arc, by the way, is a giant chain made of excavated Roman nails and flavor-denuded chewing gum that's deployed by skyhooks to accurately measure the length of an artillery shell's ballistic pathway. No, no, no. An E-Arc is an electronic advanced reading copy, the galley proof of an upcoming Bane book that's pretty much straight from the author to you, before we lay all that editing and proofreading stuff onto its beauteous being. The chief reason you'd want one is to get the book early, early, early. Now available is The Sword of the South E-Arc by David Weber. This is the fifth book in David Weber's Norfresa epic fantasy series, and it starts a new cycle. Uh, in this one, Basil is more of a secondary character, and a mysterious fellow named Ken Hoden comes to the fore. Also out is... His Father's Eyes, E-Arc, by David B. Coe. 
This is book two in David Coe's very entertaining mystery contemporary fantasy cross-up series, The Case Files of Justice Fearson. It's about a detective in Phoenix, Arizona, who uses his supernatural power to solve cases, even though sometimes that power gets out of hand. And there's Steve White's latest entry in the Jason Thanu time travel adventure series. And here is a big finale as Jason and his allies go up against the nefarious transhumanist in their own interstellar lair. So the Sword of the South, his father's eyes, and Soldiers Out of Time, eARCs are all now available at BaneEbooks.com. We want to welcome Sharon Lee to the podcast. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Tony. Uh, Steve Miller couldn't be with us this time, and we miss him, but we shall soldier on. Sharon Lee and Steve Miller began authoring their tales of the Leaden universe 27 years ago. The series went through a number of publishers until Bain Books saw a wonderful opportunity to reissue the series and to ask Sharon and Steve to write more Leiden Universe novels. For the past decade, they've done it that, with Leiden novels Fledgling, Saltation, Mouse and Dragon, Ghost Ship, Dragon Ship, Necessity's Child, Trade Secret, and Dragon in Exile. And I think I got them all. Did I get them all the, the modern ones, <laughs> as it were? Sharon and Steve are also the the authors of other Bane novels. The most current set is um, Sharon's solo Archer's Beach contemporary fantasy series that includes uh, Carousel Tides, Carousel Sun, and Carousel Seas. The original Leaden Universe novels have been collected into Bane omnibus editions as well, and there are two previous published volumes of short stories and novellas set in the Leaden Universe, a Leaden Universe Constellation Volumes 1 and 2. And available in August at booksellers everywhere is Aliaden Universe Constellation Volume 3. Sharon, how does Volume 3 differ from the first two collections of Aliaden Universe-related stories? By the way, we have podcasts uh, talking about those as well. Okay, um, we do, yes. It's about back last year. Um, Aliaden Universe Constellation 3 differs from the first two collections in that, with the exception of King of the Cats, all of the stories in Volume 3 are new, by which I mean they were all written within the last five years. We've caught ourselves up. I want to talk to you about King of the Cats in a little bit. <laughs> that's, <laughs> okay. that's some story. So um, I've compared the Leiden universe to Faulkner's Yachtna Patofa County before and received some nonplus reactions, I think, from you and Stevie. <laughs> but they, they are similar in that you have this wonderful setting that allows you to tell just about any story under the sun and have them unified by the setting and, and have this main sort of driving story that, that holds it all together. Can you give us the Cliff Notes version of uh, the Leiden universe? reaction from Steve and I because I think the comparison with Faulkner um, stands better against the Archer's Beach books because Faulkner um, was building on and expanded from Lafayette County, right? Yes, true. Archer's Beach is based on yeah. and expands from Old Orchard Beach in Maine. So I think that's why it's a little bit of a cognitive dissonance. Um, the Aliadin universe, um, we made up out of whole cloth. I mean, it's not based on our universe and existing trade routes. Um, there are so-called Terrans, and that's because at the time we started writing, you had to have the people of Earth in order to provide a connection to readers. 
Mm-hmm. And we started doing this back in the 80s. Um, so we did that, but we were sneaky um, because Terrans and the Lillian universe are second-class citizens. Terra does not rule the spaceways and control trade. Liad and Liadans control the trade, and nobody rules the spaceways because, you know, space is vast. Come on. Um, what we wanted to do, and what I think we have done um, in the Liadan un- universe, is to create a universe where we could find all sorts of um, different cultures and talk about simple problems, one-person problems, set against a backdrop of larger problems. And we could talk about things that when Steve and I were growing up um, on in East Coast America in the 60s and 70s and 80s, um, things we didn't talk about. Um, the entire concept of Malanti, which is billed as the single philosophical construct that separates Leadens and humans, is actually something that all of us do every day here on the East Coast of America. Uh, when we go to work, we act in certain ways. When we come home and we're, say, the mom, we have another role. We compartmentalize and we act appropriately. It's instinctive and it's so ingrained that we never talk about it. Liadans, on the other hand, not only talk about it, they've enshrined it as a central concept of their society. Melanti. It's a... Melanti. There's no real way to say exactly what it all is, but it, it's it's this. It's not just the cast um, communication. It's it's a, an idea of balance, right? Melanti, um, yes, because you have to balance all of the roles that your life encompasses, um, and it partakes of balance, and it partakes of honor, and it partakes of um, your relationship to other people. So it, it is complex, but it's it's doable. We do it every day. And if you do it wrong in the Leiden universe, you might get yourself killed. Well, that's very true. Yeah. So, can many of our listeners know the the backstory of how how you and Steve came up with this? Um, but uh, it's interesting, and and many won't. Can you tell us about that? Um, let's see. Steve and I we started writing together in the mid eighties. And our first collaboration was a couple of stories and a graphic novel, which we just recently uncovered and never got published, um, about an inept and not very bright wizard named Kinzel. And with those stories, we found out that we worked pretty well together, and I brought to the table the proto-universe that I've been working on, kind of telling myself stories in my head. I was you know, one of these lonely kids, so I read a lot, and then when I didn't have anything to read, I told myself stories. Um, and I put the pieces on the table. And Steve, who was the elder writer by some years and number of publications, started to riff on them, as one does. Um, and I started to riff off of his riff, and we put the universe together between us as it stands today. Um, and I should probably say that the Leiden universe is sort of like our universe, an expanding universe. So it grows with every story we write. But you laid the foundations in, in one creative session, right? Is it, I mean, of course it's been growing through the years and become much more rich. No, but we, we did, we sat down and we, we put together the, the pieces we had into um, what, what at that point we thought were going to be seven novels. Um, and that plan changed. That's the expanding universe above. That plan changed as things moved on and as life happened. Um, but we've been working pretty much within the rules we laid down that one that one session for the last 27 years. 
So, uh, in Lian Universe Constellation 3, uh, the stories, you began the collection with this wonderful little tale, um, Code of Honor. It concerns Tommy Lee and how he became attached to Clan Corville. Uh, who is Tommy in the mainline novels? Uh, where does he appear in the books, and why did you you want to tell the standalone story about him? Okay, the, um, why I'm laughing. Um, Tommy's very first appearance in the League Universe is in Code of Honor, and he was an accident. Yeah. Steve and I were Steve and I were talking over the um, the probable antics of a completely other character and how certain matters in their life would resolve since they had taken on a very difficult off-world task. And it turned out that this character, who we still owe a story to, um, needed something from Clan Corval, and in our brainstorming, the thing that she needed from Clan Corval was of such value that it needed someone to bring it to her and guard it from harm, and that was Tommy Lee. And he just walked in, fully formed with this this amazing backstory, and it just unfolded seamlessly. He's, he's a gift character. You very, very rarely get one of these. It just walks on and says, here I am, and I am a complete person. Um, but he was there, and we couldn't not write his story, so we did. Yeah, I mean, he's a really a good, uh, a good character that's not just a goody-goody. He's the, and you've got this story that explains a bit, little bit of where, where that arose. Um, he's originally Clan Savert, um, right. and that's one of those, there's a bunch of clans, um, Leiden clans, and this is one that's like down on its luck, way down on its luck. Um, and Tommy has a doozy of a grandfather who runs the clan. He's like something out of Dickens. Can you tell us about old Grandpa Savert? Well, let's see. Clan Savert is actually, oh, they're middle class, but they're they're low middle class. Um, and Tommy's grandfather is ambitious, and he, he's also something of a gambler. Um, unfortunately, since he's the Delm, and the head, which means he's the head of the clan, um, what he's gambling with um, are the lives of his family members. Um, and while the Leaden ideal is that the Delm embodies all that is best in the clan, um, that's sometimes people being people, that's sometimes not a waste of case. Um, so Grandpa ought to be re enriching the lives of his of his children and his kin and holding the clan stable. Um, but he wants to move himself and the clan up into the mid-tier and maybe even to the high clans. And because of this, he has taken on a very stupid and desperate alliance with a high, with a high clan lord who can't afford to get his hands dirty. Um, and he's called Tommy, but Tommy has been a, a mercenary and, um, has, has a great, you know, a military sense of honor that he's developed and he calls him back. Um, he calls him back out of the Tommy, uh, granddad didn't want anything to do with Tommy. Tommy, who was born Tom Lee, T-O-M-L-E-I, um, was a festival child and he doesn't look anything like any of the rest of the family and granddad hated him. Um, so Granddad told his mom when Tommy became 14 to get rid of the kid. Um, but it better not cost the clan any money, which is why she winds up um, signing him into the into the mercenaries, which is basically a Terran organization, because they gave him a signing bonus. She didn't have to spend any money on on an apprenticeship or, or 
a license or anything. And it got him out of the clan. Yeah, and he even surreptitiously um, helped his mom out a little bit. She's 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 treated horribly by the granddad, her father. She is indeed. Yeah. Um, he's not a nice man. No, he's not. So, and he, and as with the story opens, Tommy uh, comes back because it's he's duty bound, and um, but he is not at all happy with with um, having to do so. Not only is he duty bound, he tries to figure out. He's been a um, protocol officer for the last what fifteen years, um, and he tries to figure out a way not to come back to this commanding officer who says, "No, no, we've got this right here in the contract. If the Leaden is called back on business of the clan, we have to throw you out, and you can never come back." Well, therefore, and thereafter transpires this this great opening, strong opening story. Um, so I'll skip around a bit. There are 12 stories in the collection. Uh, intelligent de- de- intelligent Design. This is not the backstory of a Liat or Terran or even someone biological. Um, what is the situation with the house servants at Corval when this story is set? Uh, I believe we're in Valcon's time. We are. Valcon's a little boy. Um, and his father has to... It takes place right after Mouse and Dragon in the in the timeline, um, Falcon's mother has died, and his father has left the clan. His father was a Dill. So his father has left his heir, Falcon, and the, <clears throat> the business of Clan Corval to his, to his brother, Ertan Musgallen. Um, the trouble is that Ertan made a life choice that um, altered not only his own life, because we didn't never act totally individually because they're attached to their clan. Whatever they do reflects on their clan. Um, so it, uh, this life choice has offered an opportunity for people who are seeking advantage to try to unmoor Clan Corval from its position and to gain some advantage. And Ertam's bad life choice was that instead of providing his clan with his children through contract marriage, which is what we usually do, or through a life mating with a a proper Leaden lady, he's chosen to life mate a Terran, a Terran of very little consequence, a, a university professor. Um, and since Falcon's mother is dead and his father is gone, the university professor is married to Corval in trust, and that makes her the second most powerful person on the planet, which doesn't sit well with a lot of um, traditionalists. Um, one of the clans who is seeking to improve their position by this situation and to prove that their clan's Melanti is superior to Clan Corvall's Melanti, which is really risky, is Clan Rendit, to which Mr. Pakora, who is the butler at, at the Osgolan's house, belongs. And as the story opens, the brand new Delm of Clan Rendit has decided that he's going to demonstrate his superiority and he calls Mr. Pakora home so as to no longer taint his clan's Melanti by having one of its members serve a Terran. Uh-huh. That leaves the house without a butler. And I don't want to give too much away, but there are wonderful passages of, of this, robot, this robot mind slowly losing power and trying to stick around and generally being as stoic as, as it can be about death. Um, so how do you come up with, how do you, how do you write a character that's profoundly non-human like, like this? Well, you know, that, that's a really human um, 
situation you've picked out. If you're if you're dying um, from a long illness, which has horribly left you lucid, um, it must be terrible and terrifying. Um, whether you're made out of meat or, or you know diodes. So you found the 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 commonality. Yes. Um, this is this is someone who is dying in a terrible circumstance. Those passages are very, very lyrical as well. Thank you. One of these days I'm going to teach a course about how to craft real characters, um, but today is not that day. <laughs> <laughs> you also, to, to turn to something, uh, you have a story that about kind of the Leiden equivalent of tribbles um, or something like that, the, the Norbears. Can you tell us about that? which is the second Leiden book ever written, um, which I, I get, this gets confusing with the numbers about, you know, is this the third book or the ninth book or whatever, because we move back and forth in time. But anyhow, Conflict of is the second book, and the Norbears came about because Conflict of Honors takes place on a trade ship, and on the trade ship there is a pet library, so that crew members who feel in need of, of unconditional um love and some quiet time with an, with an animal can go and check out an animal. And we needed to fill out <laughs> the pet library. Hmm. And we wanted to have a kind of a hamster, guinea pig, rabbit kind of a furry animal that people might like to, to cuddle and sit with. And at that point, the Norbears were more or less a throwaway. They were just an animal that was in the pet library along with the snakes, one of the one of the characters like snakes. Um, but then we learned that they, they were useful in the universe. Um, and they've grown. Um, nowadays, in the, in the modern books, Norbears are natural empaths who are banned on some planets because um, the administrators of the planets think that Norbears can control people's thoughts, which they can't. Um, they're also found very helpful in places like personnel departments because does the Norbear like you? Does the Norbear think you're agitated? Does the Norbear hide from you? If the Norbear hides from you, okay, you're out of here right now. Um, and they have a fuzzy kind of a little communication thing. They offer up a little visual mental catalog of people and places they know. They try to connect things. Relationships are really, really important to them. Um, so they try to find out who you know and if they know that person and if they should know that person. Um, those people find them very soothing. And they're awfully cute. And they're really scary, and they're awfully cute, yeah. <laughs> well, there's an early story in the collection. Let's talk about the, the Kinzel. <laughs> I found particularly weird and fascinating, which was King of the Cats. Um, it's it's really funny. It's probably the most humorous story in the book, and it's, and it's practically jaunty in that way. What are these two universes that have collided, and how, the, how did the story come about? Well, I, I mentioned earlier that way back in the 1980s, um, Steve and I collaborated on, on these stories about this inept and really not very bright wizard, who, despite that, has a very strong moral code. He knows right from wrong. Um, he's not good on gray, gray areas, um, but right from wrong he's got. And he also likes cats. <laughs> um, and we had... He really likes cats. Yes. He really likes cats, and they like him, so that's good. Yeah. Um, and at that time, Steve and I were living in Owings Mills, Maryland, and 
Steve was making part of our living by running chess tournaments on the weekend. And we'd already written the, the Kindle stories. And Agent of Change, the first lead novel, <clears throat> was out on submission, and I guess that would have been with Ace. And I was home alone with a typewriter and a ream of paper and two universes in my head. Um, so I wrote a story exploring what would happen if this inept and not very bright wizard had the power to actually call upon our extremely bright, resourceful, and not always completely honest agent of change, Valconia Selium, in order to resolve a problem for the cats. And what Kinzel has done is that he has called upon a possibly fabled person in his own universe, the king of the cats. Um, and that pulls Valcon in from the Leaden universe to solve this problem, which he's compelled to solve because Kindle, being inept but very powerful, has made it so that Valcon can't go home until he solves this problem. Yeah, it was a it was a fun story to write, but it's not canon. <laughs> well, it's I mean, and, and it's really funny because the Valcon's reaction is I mean, he doesn't he takes it seriously, but he doesn't. Um, right, this cannot be happening, really. Um, and I don't, I don't think he got the idea that he could actually die there either. Um. Well, it's a lot of fun. Um, it, probably my personal favorite story in the collection is Ken Ties. Um, this is a story that involves the the two healers, I believe, that's of Clan Corval, and Thora and Renzel, her life mate. Um, this is kind of a Renzel, partly a Renzel story. Has he's married into Corval? He's gotten quite a backstory. Can you explain what Leaden healers actually are and do? Because they're, they're a lot more than just healers. And tell us about the relationship of, of these two in particular. Okay, let me see. Leaden healers are interactive empaths. Okay, they can not only read your emotions, but they can reach inside your head and uh, untangle the knots in your psyche. Um, they can make terrible, terrible memories of people were having... Um, Memories from the war, for instance, um, that was that were incapacitating them. Um, they could make those terrible memories recede. Um, so they're Hippocratic oath, I guess you would say, would be to increase the joy and the amount of joy in the universe. Um, there, and there are some commissions that they won't take if they see that it's going to cause harm, either to the person or to um, to some other thing. They're like psychic doctors. They're really, I mean, they're really quite powerful. Um, probably the most powerful once they realize what they can do uh, in the in the whole Leiden universe. It would seem. Well, you you would think that also what they can you know they can hear hear emotions and they can make somebody happy or not. But that's a lot of power. It is a lot of power when you start thinking about it. It seems such a simple thing. Yeah. Um, and I would say that some healers never realize their full potential as, as terribly dangerous people, um, which is a good thing. Um, the healers that we usually deal with, Valcon's brother, Sean, is a healer. And because he moves and shakes in the wider universe he's, as a master trader, he has learned to use his, his power in many different and subtle ways. Um, which makes him an interesting character to deal with. Yeah. Well, how did how did um, Anthora and Renzel get together? 
Victorian Red Soul got together in, in Plan B. And it was the tree's fault. Um, and I'm not sure how to untangle that much <laughs> further without giving massive spoilers. For but that. Renzel is not uh, not originally quotable, right? Uh, not originally quotable. Renzel's story um, starts in Renzel de Juden, his name is, and it starts in the novella Changeling. And it continues through Plan B, I Dare, and now into the present day novels. Um, in Kintai's Renzel and in Sora, are sent on a mission by Dom Corval to reassure um, certain of Corval's more nervous allies because of Corval's sudden relocation from Liad to Sherblake, which happened in you know, I Dare and Dragon in Exile and, and Alliance of Equals. Um, in Changeling, Renzel is made clanless, or which is to say dead, through no fault of his own. Um, and in spite of this, and Thora finds him, and they become life mates in this very complicated way. Um, but Renzel is still dead, even though he's now risen, and he's part of the most powerful clan on Oshorblake. Um, he's still dead to his birth clan, and he hasn't contacted them, because that's, that's against, cult, that's against um, tradition. And one of the points of this mission that Anthor and Renzel are on in King Ties is to bring Renzel's birth clan, Clan Obrelt, into balance with Corval, who feels that it has benefited greatly by his addition to the clan. So this is this is part of what they're doing. Renzel is horrified. Um, he's a lot more rule bound than Anthor, and he does he doesn't want to disturb the peace of his former clan by presenting himself and saying, "Hey, deal with me." Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's part of the conflict of the story. Well, there's another character in Kentai's, and that is Bethy. Um, we met her. She's been put in charge of a. She's a, on a spaceship repair crew, I think. Uh, she's been put in charge, and um, it's a new assignment for her. What what is she doing? I'm, am I right? I think it was a spaceship repair crew. Yeah, she she's part of a repair crew, and this is her very first time as supervisor of a job supervisor. Um, she's been with the crew for a while, and <clears throat> when her boss gives her the, the supervisor job, she says, what, what, wait, me? And he says, yes. And she says, why me? And she, she says, it's time. So um, she goes with the crew to supervise this thing. Bethy's full name is Sirbrit Marianda Kanjubin. And by dint of being the last survivor of her clan, she's also the Del. Yeah, that's their that that is um, she's secretly a princess in a way. She is secretly a princess, except the clan has nothing. Yeah. Um, her grandfather wasted the substance of the clan, and people left the clan. This is all because of the events in Changeling, um, and basically it came down to to Bethy and her granddad. Um, and her granddad taught her two things. He taught her how to shoot. And he taught her to hate Renzel de Juden. Mm-hmm. And he made her he made her swear to kill him in truth, actually kill him, should she ever see him. Um, because Grandpa believes that Renzel is the reason that Clan Juben has fallen into ruin. He blames all of this on Renzel. Um, but and that's because in Changeling, uh, Renzel's Delm marries him to. Grandpa's daughter, well, Grandpa's daughter, Bethy's mom, who is a pilot, as Renzel's a pilot, and it seems 
a reasonable match, though it's a little bit of a stretch for Renzel's clan, because most of the people in that clan are shopkeepers and accountants. Um, but it's 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 agreed upon by both sides. And um, whose daughter is Bethy? He's not. She's not Renzel's daughter. No, no. She, the, Renzel's wife had already had a daughter for the clan. Ah, okay. Yeah, the the child she would she should have born from the marriage with Renzel would have come to Renzel's clan. Well, they're um, obviously these are two characters that that are on a course to uh, to uh, oppose. Well, Bethy's on a on a dangerous course, and so is Renzel, although he doesn't know it. Uh, it's a great story. Uh, there's another favorite story of mine, uh, Elithurios. The situation is pretty bleak. Um, we're at Godsmere Abbey. Can you tell us where this is? And and I think this is related to Necessity's Child. Um, actually, I can't tell you where it is um, because this is one of the stories that's not necessarily moored in time and space. Um, and it's one of the reasons that we cleverly ex uh, created this large and expanding universe. Um, this story happened in that corner over there at some point, or, you know, once upon a time. Mm -hmm. So this story is meant, uh, it was is meant to illuminate the Betel and how they operate and what the rules are. And while we wrote it as a teaser story in advance of Necessity's Child, um, it has nothing to do with Necessity's Child. It doesn't take place on Shore Blake. Um, it features none of the characters, even though there's another Betel company in Necessity's Child. It's not the same company. Um, they're on a completely different tangent. Tell us about the Betel. They're, it's a really interesting uh, group. Um, the Betel are based. They actually are based on the European Gypsies or, or the Rom pre-World War II. Okay, and I based some of the world building that went into the Betel on John Muir's book, The Gypsies, which is a really interesting book, and you should get it and read it. Um, it's an autobiography of, a, autobiography of a boy who traveled with the gypsies as a gypsy from the time he was like 12 until he was 25. Um, and in Elisarius, Nico is a man of the Betel. And it is said of the Betel by the Betel that they can fix anything and that they're beloved of the gods, their own gods and everyone else's. Okay, they are, they are Lux children. Um, in Elusurius, Nico's been taken up by the, the police for having let himself into a lock shop, and they take him up because they say he's stealing things. And they brought him to the monastery and placed him in Father, Father Julian's care pending his trial. Um... Because the people of the company don't give their real names to people outside of the company, Nico goes by the name of Ponner in this story. And when you're in uh, Father Julian's point of view, we, he is Potter, Ponner, but it's the same character as Nico, right? It, it is the same character. Yeah. Um, anyhow, Nico has pity on Father Julian, his jailer. Um, because this man is beholden to the police, which is not something, in Nico's opinion, anyone should ever be. <laughs> um, and also because Father Julian loves an organ. There's an organ in the monastery, and there, there is a backstory mentioned that there had been an earthquake in this particular town. 
and it had destroyed the town and broken a lot of stuff in the monastery. And one of the things that broke was the organ. The organ hasn't hasn't played in 20 years. Um, but the Beidou can fix anything, right? Mm-hmm. And that includes hearts as well as machines. And since he is a man of honor, by the company's definition of honor, um, Nico decides to do everything that is required. Um, so, yeah, I like that one too. I think it's a nice story. Yeah, it's the and and the music that you and the the, the feel for music that you work into is also um, a wonderful uh, benefit of the story. So, what uh, what other backstories and tales are you and Steve? What do you, working on or, or have on the burner. Um, I can only imagine we're going to see more um, lead and stories coming along. You can't seem to stop yourselves. <laughs> no, we, we, just, we write short stories. We started out as short story writers, so we, no, we can't stop ourselves. The big thing on the burner is the next lead novel, The Gathering Edge. Um, and there were a couple of stories kind of perking at the moment. Um, Alliance of Equals raised some really interesting points that we both want to explore. And we still owe the character that Tommy hijacked. We still owe her a story, so we better get on that one. Uh, well, um, definitely, well, let's just make a deal here that we want a, uh, <laughs> we want a Bane.com story to, uh, to go with the next novel. We can, we can do that. So at least we have one. I know it's gonna gonna come along, and, and several of these in the collection. That's where they they came from. That's right. It's been wonderful to to have the these Leaden stories. As what we do is we publish them about a half a month before the book comes out, and it so in, in this case it was related vaguely, but pretty much uh, thematically in, in the case of Elithurios to Necessity's Child. But there some are right you know, secondary characters in the books and such. And they're to give you a taste of, of what you can find if you read the book. Um, do you, people a fair taste. Yeah. When you write these, um, do you think, well, now I can finally do that. Or do you think, well, what, what do I have here? What can I work with? Or is it both? Both those in the case of the Eleutherius, we wanted to, because the beta were a brand new character in Necessity's Child, we wanted to kind of warn people and to also make them familiar with the rules, the rules of the company before they came across them in the book and went, "What's this?" Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was basic. That was basically a setup story for people. Um, we do try to use those stories to illuminate something that's going to be important in the book, just to, to get people to to pay attention a little bit harder. Yeah, and and they they just make wonderful standalone stories as well. The book is a Leaden Universe Constellation Volume Three by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. It is an August book and will be at booksellers everywhere. Sharon, thank you so much for being with us and talking about it. Thank you, Tony. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. 
Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. Chapter 5 Nate Dolan, B.S., Microbiology, 25 years of age, 5 foot 4 in his stocking feet, and world-class biology geek with a nearly complete collection of the Amazing Spider-Man series to prove it, was regretting more and more his choice of jobs to put himself through grad school. Intergen had been a great place to work, even if it was part-time and he had to spend most of his time in a moon suit. Now he had beady-eyed FBI agents poring over his every movement for the last three days while simultaneously expecting him to help out for less than half what he got paid at Intergen. In a moon suit, of course. LEX wasn't quite shut down, but since it was suspected as one of the main sources of the Pacific flu, it had been shut down and might get shut down again. Especially if they couldn't find the source. And frankly, anybody had to be an idiot to just go wandering the airport in open when all the official people were either keeping their distance or in moon suits. The powers that be were sure at this point that H7D3 was a man-made virus, a really cool one for that matter, and that there had to be a mechanical spread mechanism. The technical term for that turned out to be attack vector. Nate had learned that when he was getting in-briefed on the search, which should have showed these bad suit-wearing clowns he hadn't done it. But until they could find traces of H7 in the environment, which was sort of tough, they were stymied to find the attack vector. They'd had all sorts of false positives. The antibody swabs they were using were a sort of general flu test. They pinged as soon as they hit anything that looked anything like influenza, which turned out to be half the organic chemicals on Earth. Up until today, they'd had to send them all back to various labs to be tested. Today, they had finally delivered a more precisely tuned antibody test. They still used the strips for the initial test, but a field retest was now possible. Drop the strip in a test tube, squirt in magic antibody fluid, and wait for results. I've got another, Luis Lopez said, holding up a strip. Sure enough, it was bright red. He'd been swabbing the inside of one of the stalls. The good news was that anything in there was kept out by the moon suit. The bad news was that about half their false positives came from in the stalls. There was everything in those stalls. It was tough to be a germaphobe and work in biology. This job was making him a germaphobe. He certainly didn't ever want to have to use a public restroom again. And we have a... Nate said, shaking the test tube. The liquid was red as blood. Positive? Seriously? Did we get a sample to cross-test? Louise asked. You think they're going to hand me H7? Nate asked, looking in the stall. There wasn't much graffiti. The problem with the stalls was that they were, yeah, cesspits on one level, but they were also cleaned regularly. They just weren't cleaned well. So most of the trace evidence, including any H7, should have been removed or degraded by the environment, even if there had been some sort of vector there a couple of weeks ago. The H7 should have been cleaned away or basically broken down from heat and humidity 
and there wasn't any sort of aerosol canister. That had been the first check. I'd be too likely to slip it to our handlers. Don't even joke, Luis said. He was from Argentina, working, like Nate, on his master's at UCLA. You, they'd at least give some rights. They even suspect it's me and I'm on a plane to Guantanamo. Where'd this come from? Nate asked, looking around the stall. Walls and door, Luis said. If there was eight seven in the stall, something had put it there. Recently. It had clearly been recently scrubbed. Two more tests showed that the walls, door, and even floor were contaminated, according to the swab and tube. What there was was a deodorizer on the door. A round green deodorizer with the motto, Save the Planet, Reduce, Reuse, Recycle, SaveThePlanet.org, stamped into the plastic. He'd swabbed those before. They were the first thing he'd hit the first stall he'd seen, and gotten back that the material in the deodorizer was giving a false positive, which just might have been a false negative. If the carrier had enough chemical similarities to the protein coat of the virus, it could be construed as a false positive, depending on the test. If the evaporative coating was still coating the virus, as one example. He reached out, carefully, and cracked open the deodorizer. I want you to personally run this back to Dr. Karza, Nate said, using a scupula to pull out some of the beige-ish substance in the deodorizer. Tell him I suggest he run it through the portable SEM. Why didn't you identify that immediately? The FBI supervisory special agent asked. Those canisters had been tested, right? I mean, they were obvious. Because microbiology isn't as easy as pointing a gun at someone, Dr. Azim Karza shouted, his eyes glued to the SEM screen. There's no need to get, the agent said, then coughed and sniffed. Oh, shit. Get the hell out of my laboratory, Dr. Karza said. As the agent left, he gave himself a quick blood test, then sighed in relief. Still no trace of H7D3. He'd seen the special agent using poor transmission protocols, but was forced to work with him in close quarters, which meant that the agent's sniffles were something other than H7D3. Karza could have cleared that up for him with the same sort of test, but let the Myrmidon bastard sweat it for a while. June? FBI sources have found the source of the Pacific flu virus. Anyone observing green deodorizers imprinted with the word Save the Planet in public places should avoid them and immediately report their location to their local police or the FBI tip line. The evaporative material was giving a false negative reaction to the antibody tests, Dr. Dobson said wearily. We checked the deodorizers and given them a pass yesterday. Then when we got the new antibody strips, one of the techs realized that there had to be a continuous source. Looking at the material under SEM, he gestured to the image and shrugged. I don't know if that was part of the culprit's plan, but it was effective. They've now identified them in over 60 locations, at least one per bathroom, mostly stretching up and down the West Coast. So this was an eco-terrorist attack? Dr. Su Bao asked. The current representative from the Chinese Ministry of Health was clearly convinced on the subject if for no other reason than the Chinese government was already using the assumption to crack down on the environmental activists. 
The FBI isn't really commenting, but it's possible, Dr. Dobson said. On the other hand, if you just wanted the finger pointed at eco-terrorists, it would be a simple way to do it. Honestly, doctor, I just hope nobody points out that the canisters were made in China. We assuredly did not have anything to do with this. I know that, Dobson said. Everyone with any sense knows that. It doesn't mean it's not going to get pointed out by idiots. This was not eco-terrorism, the Greenpeace spokesperson insisted. No decent environmentalist is going to do something like this. And even if one was so insane as to infect humanity with a deadly plague, they wouldn't have used a non-recyclable container. And might I point out, the canisters were made in China. One of the greatest eco-terrorists on the planet. Whoa, O'Reilly said. Whoa, whoa, so is most stuff these days. Pointing a finger at the Chinese government is premature, to say the least. I didn't say the... Out of time. Next on the O'Reilly Factor. If there is a next time, Dr. Curry said, shaking the popcorn bag to get at the bits in the bottom. The laboratory he'd been handed by Boda was nicely complete, but at the moment he was mostly using the microwave. Mr. Smith had looked at him oddly when he'd requisitioned 600 cases of microwave popcorn, but he figured that even if they lost power, Boda had generators. With water, decon showers, and enough popcorn, he was good till doomsday. Or till they totally lost power. I love a front row seat to the apocalypse. Y'all know what the big issue is right now, Lieutenant Simmons said. Fortunately, other crimes are down. However, we're starting to get heavy traffic. Rats fleeing the ship, Paterno said. People are scared, Simmons said, shrugging. The TV's staying away from the Z word, but it's all over the internet. That, and it being a real and really big bioterror attack, has people worried. We just worked the problem. Some of the people in traffic are going to neurological stage while driving. Night shift had a lot of accidents. Every reserve officer who's responding has been called in. Young tuned the brief out. He was still pending a shoot review. There had been a few words at first, but by the end of his shift, so many officers had had to use their weapons that they didn't even take his in for the investigation. So far, he'd had to shoot three afflicted to wound and two more to kill. They were still being ordered to subdue and restrain, but there were more and more 1064 hostels every shift, and subduing them took two officers at a minimum. Then there was at least two hours of paperwork per 1064. For calls in the subject, the term 1064 hotel has been added to the call sign list, Simmons said, getting to the main point. The count was 46 1064 hotels overnight. 46, Paterno said. We've only got 40 officers. One 1064 with transport and paperwork takes... Which is why the chief has authorized abbreviated paperwork, Simmons said, holding up a pile of forms. Just let me finish, Joe. These are 1064 suspected afflicted with neurological stage Hotel 7 virus forms. Try to get a solid ID, transport, and fill out the form. No matter the eventual disposition, the DA, with concurrence of governor pending change in actual law, has stated that nobody is going to try to try any of these people. 
And the hospital is overloaded. All the hospitals are overloaded. Transport of all 1064 hotels is now to 127 Curb Court. Warehouse 7. Warehouse District? Young said, looking up finally. They're maintaining them there, pending some more appropriate facility. Simmons said, Just try to get a solid ID, secure, and transport. Don't call an ambulance unless you have a seriously injured civilian that absolutely requires ambulance transport. Ambulances are overloaded with injured, and there's a shortage of ambulance crews. There have been confirmed locations of the attack vector device on the East Coast. FBI saying they may have been in place for as much as a week. One was found right here in Williamsburg. Oh, holy shit, Young said, shaking his head. He'd called his parents and brother. They were all staying inside and basically skipping work. The one bright spot is that CDC is now saying that 1064s may, again, may, not be airborne infectious. Simmons continued. The downside is that they are infectious through the blood pathogen, and the blood pathogen is extremely aggressive. If you're exposed to the blood pathogen, either due to bleeding from the subject or due to blood spray, decontaminate immediately. We're issuing a decon kit per car. We have them on hand, thank God. Don't let them bite you, Paterno said. Don't. Young, that came from you first. I never got the story. I was responding to a 1037 yesterday, Young said. It seemed like ten years ago. Family loading a sailboat. They were using a dock on one of those foreclosure properties over in Hunter Creek. Loading it for a long trip, and they admitted to having a large quantity of weapons in their vehicle. The male subject knew about the upcoming announcement from the CDC. This was just a bit before noon. He stated that I should avoid the blood pathogen as well. Right after this, things started to, well, degrade. It was one of the reasons for my decision to act with lethal force in the encounter that day. I swear to God I wasn't going rogue. Something. Something killer. It was just I was dealing with two 1064s. Don't, Simmons said, grimacing. It's not up for discussion right now. I can't comment on the shoot. On that subject, though, our rules of engagement remain unchanged. Use minimum force necessary to subdue the 1064s. Given our new understanding of the situation, the specific wording that I was given is use minimum force necessary, consonant with a full understanding of the threat and nature of threat to protect self and others with a high priority to ensure safe processing of the presumed H7D3 afflicted subject. Try to remember that however these people are acting, they are people. People sick with a goddamn disease. This isn't their fault. In a lot of ways, it would be easier if they were walking dead, Paterno said, shrugging. Let's try to stay away from the meme if we can, Simmons said. Think I wanted to double tap some poor guy who was just sick? Young asked, shaking his head. You're not the only one, man, Rickles pointed out. We're recommending that all officers dealing with 1064s in general use rain gear for the time being until there's a better fix, Simmons said, nodding. 
That's gonna be hot as shit, Young said. Fortunately, it looks to be a cool day, Lieutenant Simmons said. For who? Paterno replied with a snort. If it wasn't for the reason, I'd be really enjoying this, Steve said, glancing over at Stacy. The wind was kicking up whitecaps on the choppy waters of the Chesapeake Bay, and the hunter was heeled over at a 30-degree angle as it plowed north towards the Baltimore Canal. Steve was being careful to steer well clear of the main shipping channel to the east, so they had a clear view of the shoreline to the west. So far, there was no real evidence of societal breakdown, which was boding well for his decision to make for the canal. I could wish for better weather, Stacy said, pulling her windbreaker tighter. Warmer, at least. This is good weather, Steve said. The wind that had followed the cold front was cool, but it was constant, and that was good. And it's given us a chance to get our sea legs without it being too rough. Always the optimist. Stacy said tightly. Worried? Steve asked without looking at her. Aren't you? She gestured with her chin to the cabin. The girls could be heard engaged in their more or less continuous low-grade argument. Is one of us infected already? What do we do about it? Tie ourselves up, Steve said. I think we're going to have to forgo that for a while, honey, Stacy said, blushing slightly. Think with other bits, dear, Steve said, smiling. I don't really like thinking of it in terms of ourselves, so I think what other people should do. No plague is 100% effective. The Black Plague did, admittedly, wipe out whole families and villages, but it had a lot of help. It's unlikely that even if we're infected, all of us will go, to fully neurological conditions. So from now on, when we're not actively engaged in something, we'll secure ourselves. Lightly, with rope. If one of us starts to have neurological effects, the others will work to secure them until we can find an antidote or something. Or something, Stacy said, frowning. I have various smart women around me, Steve said, shrugging. We'll figure something out. But only if we can keep from biting each other. Well, Stacy said, snuggling closer, maybe a little nibble. I don't know, Steve said. Have you been a good girl? Do you deserve a nibble? I've been a very bad girl, Stacy whispered in his ear. So I definitely deserve a nibble. Oh my God, Faith said grimacing. She'd suddenly appeared in the hatchway to the saloon. That is so gross. So much for a little alone time, Steve said, shaking his head. What's up? What are we going to do about dinner? Faith asked. You know where the food is, Steve said. So we're going to have to cook in this? Faith said. We're sure as hell not ordering pizza, Stacy said. Should we break into the mountain house? Better than trying to cook a regular meal when we can barely stand up, Steve said, grinning. Think you can figure out how to boil water? In this? Faith said. No way. It's storming. This is not a storm, Steve said. Given the plan, at some point you'll understand what the word storm means in a 45-foot sailboat. This isn't even a gale. I can do it, Sophia said. I think. No, Steve said. Stace, take the wheel. 
I'm going to have to give your daughters a class on boiling water and working with boiling water in light chop conditions. Try not to kill yourself or catch the boat on fire, Stacy said. Thank you for that vote of confidence, first mate. The reason that it is both airborne and blood pathogen now becomes clear, Dr. Bao said. Researchers at University of Hong Kong have pieced out its genetic and protonomic code. The influenza virus produces two separate and distinct child viruses. One is a copy of the H7D3 influenza. The second is a highly modified version of the rabies virus. Two viruses in one, Dr. Curry said, leaning forward and setting down his popcorn bag. What the hell? Oh, 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 no, no. Tim Schull had been following the Synbio version of Chernobyl in real time, monitoring multiple different sources. Tim could because he really didn't have anything better to do. After dropping out of his master's program after that stupid argument with Dr. Werda, he'd moved back home. And since Starbucks had cut back on his time, he could spend most of the day scanning the various Synbio boards, news, and blogs. It was the virtual version of watching a train wreck in slow motion. And whether the world ended or not, it was going to wreck the amateur Synbio industry. Synbio was short for synthetic biology, the creation of new or modified organisms. The mundane term was genetic engineering. It was a field at which Tim was a sort of internet-only recognized expert. He'd been on the fast track to working in the professional field when he'd had a falling out with his master's advisor and quit. Subsequent to that, he'd continued his work, literally in his mother's basement, until a breakthrough last year that, if he'd done it as a master's thesis, would have made him a shoe-in for prizes, maybe even the Nobel, and a guaranteed Ph.D. track. Since he'd done it on his own time in a basement, the awards were few and far between. So all he'd done was put up a video and blog explaining the breakthrough and become a minor celebrity in the amateur Synbio community. Although there had been some applications breakthroughs in basement Synbio, his was really the first theoretical breakthrough, which meant he had the largest number of followers on Twitter of an amateur Synbio pioneer. And his words were, on amateur Synbio boards, given much the same weight as professionals. Unfortunately, his breakthrough was how to get a virus to express two different organisms from a single virus, and he'd put it up as a YouTube video. I am so screwed. There was a thunderous crash from upstairs, and he heard his mother screaming. Down! 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 FBI serving a valid search warrant! He looked around, but there was nowhere to run in a basement. The creator of the Pacific flu virus has been identified as 24-year-old Timothy Scholl, a dropout from the Stanford Microbiology Master's Program. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. 
and gratitude kudos and a planetoid-sized telescope used for verifying that it is indeed dark at nighttime and bright during the day. For Sharon Lee, for talking with us about the new Leaden Universe short story collection, A Leaden Universe Constellation, Book 3. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.